Welcome to The Scientist's Lab Talk, a special edition podcast where we explore topics at the leading edge of innovative research. We'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, 10X Genomics. 10X Genomics builds solutions for interrogating biological systems at a resolution and scale that matches the complexity of biology. Their rapidly expanding suite of products, which includes instruments, consumables, and software, enables customers to make fundamental discoveries across multiple research areas, including cancer, immunology, and neuroscience. In this episode, we explore how neurons withstand stress by looking at three cutting-edge technologies, CRISPR, stem cell technology, and single-cell sequencing. Tiffany Garbutt from the Scientist's Creative Services team spoke with Martin Kottman, Associate Professor at the University of California, San Francisco, Chan Zuckerberg, Biohub Investigator, and Paul G. Allen, Distinguished Investigator, to learn more. Although it accounts for only 2% of the human body weight, the brain uses 20% of the body's oxygen. High oxygen consumption creates a hostile environment that is prone to reactive oxygen species and oxidative stress. Neurons withstand this hostile, stressful environment, but the secret to their survival remains a mystery. Martin Kampmann is intrigued by the mysteries of neuronal survival and how subtle gene expression differences lead to neurodegeneration. We are very interested in how cells respond to stress, how they respond to the kind of stresses that are associated with aging, which is the major risk factor for neurodegenerative diseases, and why specific cell types, for example, in the human brain, are selectively vulnerable to stresses and selectively vulnerable to disease. This is a feature of all neurodegenerative diseases that in a given disease, specific types of neurons are first affected while other neurons are resilient. So one of the key questions that we are very excited about as a lab is to understand why some neurons are vulnerable, why some neurons are resilient, and whether we can use a mechanistic understanding of the selective vulnerability to turn vulnerable neurons into resilient neurons as a therapeutic strategy. Exploring the functional consequences of knocking down genes is key to understanding gene expression patterns that lead to disease. Before the CRISPR evolution, scientists preferred RNA interference, or RNAi, for gene knockdown. However, RNAi can produce a number of off-target effects. RNAi relies on short hairpin RNA sequences of just 7 to 8 bases to target candidate genes. Although these are sequence-specific, the target can be repeated in the genome, allowing the shRNA sequence to silence other genes in addition to the target gene. It's impossible to design RNAi reagents that are truly specific without off-target effects. And so while you can get around that by, for example, designing highly complex libraries where you target each transcript with many, many independent RNAi reagents to overcome that limitation, uh, it also means that the scale of your experiments has to be very large to get robust data. In contrast, the recently developed CRISPR-2-Cas9 system activates only when a guide RNA targets a narrow window around a transcription start site, or when it binds specifically to an enhancer region. This helps exclude off-target effects, enhancing scientists' ability to edit the sequence of the human genome. The first applications of the CRISPR-I and CRISPR-A platforms were all in cancer cell lines that are easy to grow in the lab and, of course, great when you want to study cancer. But when I started my own lab here at UCSF in 2015, we were very excited to study other types of diseases that are 
probably at this point even much more mysterious than cancer and for which we don't have any effective treatments and those are neurodegenerative diseases. And so to really understand neurodegenerative diseases, we thought we need to study them in the correct cell types, the neurons, the astrocytes, the microglia, those brain cell types that are involved in those diseases. And so the challenge was, how could we implement our CRISPR platform in those cell types that are not readily dividing in a dish? So what we decided to do is to combine CRISPR technology with induced pluripotent stem cell or IPSC technology, where we can actually uh, start from a cell such as a fibroblast or blood cell that is donated by um, a healthy volunteer or somebody who suffers from neurodegenerative diseases and uh, which we can convert into a stem cell, then engineer with our CRISPR system and then actually turn into many different cell types such as neurons, different types of neurons, uh, glia and so on. The only problem is that CRISPR does not inherently work in stem cells. In fact, it kills them. CRISPR cuts both strands of DNA, causing the cell to initiate DNA repair mechanisms. Scientists manipulate these repair mechanisms to introduce new mutations or genes. However, stem cells have an extremely active DNA damage response that safeguards the genome against error. Instead of activating DNA repair mechanisms in response to double-stranded breaks, stem cells activate pathways for apoptosis and cell death. To overcome this, Kahneman turned to CRISPR interference technology, also known as CRISPR-I. As a postdoctoral researcher in the lab of Jonathan Wiseman at the University of California, San Francisco, from 2010 to 2015, Kahneman co-developed CRISPR-I technology and implemented the first genome-wide screening platform using it. Unlike traditional CRISPR, CRISPR-I uses a catalytically dead version of Cas9, where the DNA cleavage function is inactivated. So now you have a protein that binds specific DNA sequences, but it doesn't cleave them. Instead, it can function as a recruitment platform. And one of the ways that we can use it is CRISPR interference to knock down gene expression. We can also do the opposite and do CRISPR activation by, by tethering uh, transcriptional activation domains to this dead Cas9. And so we have a customized transcription factor that we can send to any gene in the genome. And in newer iterations, we can do even much more. We can, for example, um, attach DNA methylases to methylate DNA in a very targeted way. This enabled Kampmann and his team to fully utilize the potential of CRISPR technology in iPS cells. Using this combined platform, Kampmann's team performed the first ever large-scale CRISPR interference and CRISPR activation screens in a cell type derived from iPSC and in human neurons. He and his team used easily accessible fibroblast cells from healthy donors and expanded them in culture. They then introduced the CRISPR-I or CRISPR-A machinery into a locus in the genome that is not silenced during differentiation. They then differentiated the modified iPS cells into neurons and observed the functional effect of knocking down or overexpressing genes. So the big surprise was when we conducted an unbiased screens to understand what neurons need to control reactive oxygen species and, uh, and, and oxidative stress, one of the top hits was this protein prosaposin that actually up to this point had never been implicated in anything to do with mitochondrial function, reactive oxygen species, or anything like it. In fact, it sits in the lysosomes. Prosaposin assists neurons with degrading lipids. Kahneman and his team found that in the absence of prosaposin, lipids accumulated in the lysosomes until the lysosomes became engorged. The swelling lysosomes also trapped iron, 
which catalyzed a chemical reaction to create reactive oxygen species, ultimately increasing neuronal stress and leading to cell death. If you imagine in your house, somebody stops picking up the trash, right? Over, even though trash by itself is not dangerous, if that goes on for weeks and weeks, it would create problems with the accumulation of, of trash in the house that ultimately fills the whole house. Hammond and his team compare the effects of prosopocin loss in neurons to those of other iPSC-derived cell types, such as astrocytes and microglia, and to undifferentiated iPSC. Although prosopocin is commonly expressed across a variety of cell types, its loss did not produce the same stress and cell death in these other cell types. It's something that, that is very fascinating to me. How is it that a housekeeping gene ha might have a different role in one specific cell type than in another? One piece of evidence that made me think that must be true is the fact that loss of function mutation in some housekeeping genes that are generally expressed cause diseases in humans that can be very, very tissue-specific or organ-specific or cell type-specific. So, so there must be mechanisms by which some cells depend more on a given gene than others. But it's fascinating to speculate that a gene might actually take on different role in different cell types. And because we can now have a very controlled way to, to look at gene function in different cell types by, for example, taking the same population of iPSCs and then turning it into different cell types. We now have a system that allows us to answer that question really in a systematic way. One challenge with iPS cells is that they typically behave like young cells. For this reason, some researchers doubt if iPSCs are the best model for studying aging diseases like neurodegeneration. Kampman and his team found that the loss of prosopocin led to the formation of lipofusin, an insoluble aggregate of lipids, proteins, and metals in lysosomes of neurons that associates with aging. We found that with the um, inhibition of a single gene, prosopocin, we form age pigment in those cells, which is a hallmark of old cells. So that was, you know, one of the things that I found really exciting. And not only did we see this age pigment, but it functionally really made these cells vulnerable. It created reactive oxygen species, so many of the hallmarks of aging. So that finding itself was very surprising to me, but also made me very hopeful for our ability to use these uh, cell-based models to even understand aging-associated diseases. Shortly after Kampmann compiled his manuscript, an unaffiliated international group of scientists from the United States, Canada, Japan, and Taiwan published a study linking a number of genetic variants in prosopocin to familial Parkinson's disease. Other unrelated studies also linked prosopocin to lysosomal storage diseases, which share a number of features with neurodegenerative diseases. To investigate the effect of known candidate genes linked to neurodegenerative diseases, Kampmann and his team combined their CRISPR iPSC platform with single-cell RNA sequencing. They used CRISPR to perturb the expression of genes associated with neurodegeneration across hundreds of cells and perform single-cell RNA sequencing. It's exciting to look at uh, gene expression at the single cell level because um, there is quite a lot of heterogeneity between uh, individual cells. And so looking at the single cell level helps you to differentiate uh, maybe different cell states and how even cells, a range of cells that should be the same cell type can respond differently to a specific stress or gene genetic perturbation. But um, using a single cell RNA sequencing platform actually allowed us to do this massive experiment and, and evaluate hundreds of genes at the same time, because in a pool of neurons, we would perturb different cells with, with a library of guide RNAs. 
And because we did single cell RNA sequencing, we could capture for each of these single cells both what was the guide RNA expressed in that particular cell and what was the consequence on the transcriptomes. So ultimately, these transcriptomic data sets that we're getting now from, say, human patient brains or also animal models of disease are descriptive. We would like to really understand the causality here and understand which of the genetic changes that we're seeing in disease might be beneficial or detrimental. And again, to, to understand mechanistically what's going on and where we might intervene therapeutically. The nice thing about our CRISPR-I and CRISPR-A technology is that we can purposefully model changes in gene expression by basically um, dialing up and down the levels of genes in neurons and then we can directly ask, what are the consequences? Are they beneficial or not? And, uh, and in this case, we found already one example of a gene that is very commonly upregulated in neurodegeneration. And up to now, everybody thought that that gene was a protective gene. Neuroscientists like Kampman have performed hundreds of studies and collected thousands of data points on transcriptomic changes that associate with neurodegenerative disease. Yet, which genes are driving the disease or which genes are protecting the individual from the disease remains a mystery. These transcriptomic data sets that we're getting now from, say, human patient brains or also animal models of disease are descriptive. And we would like to really understand the causality here and understand which of the genetic changes that we're seeing in disease might be beneficial or detrimental and again, to, to understand mechanistically what's going on and where we might intervene therapeutically. So the nice thing about our CRISPR-I and CRISPR-A technology is that we can purposefully model changes in gene expression by basically um, dialing up and down the levels of genes in neurons. And then we can directly ask, what are the consequences? Are they beneficial or not? And, and in this case, we found already one example of a gene that is very commonly upregulated in neurodegeneration. And up to now, everybody thought that that gene was a protective gene. But by coupling CRISPR perturbations to single cell RNA sequencing and related technologies, we now get an extremely high dimensional phenotype for each gene perturbation, a real fingerprint of the cell state, if you will. And, and that could help us after screening a bunch of genes um, to rapidly recognize which of them have similar fingerprints and might be acting in, in similar ways. That's much easier than if we just have a screen based on a one-dimensional readout, such as survivals. There's many ways in which knockdown of a gene can impair survival, right? Um, and, and all of those genes uh, would look the same. But once we look at single-cell transcriptomics, we get a much deeper um, insight into what exactly happens when we knock down that gene. Common cell-based studies generated more than a quarter million phenotypes. To share their data, Kahneman and his team created their own database specifically designed to look at gene function in different human cell types. Neuroscientists can search for their gene of interest in several different databases. Often, a gene may have a different function in a different cell type or a new unknown function. We wanted to create a database that really enables people to cross-compare different data sets to, to get at the cell type-specific gene function, to look for their gene of interest, maybe a disease-associated gene, or to look for um, you know, specific cellular phenotypes that they might be interested in. And as you can imagine, we talked about single-cell RNA sequencing uh, readouts for screens. That's an even higher-dimensional phenotype. So we wanted to provide people a way to visualize all of that in, in an interactive way. 
um, in large heat maps that they can zoom in, that they can uh, filter and so on. And so there was no tool out there for that. And that's why we created CRISPR Bain. But we think of this not just as a depository for our own results, but we hope that it will become a data commons that many other labs also start to contribute to so that we really build over time a great resource to get at these questions of what do genes do in different human cell types. Kaman is working now to expand his cell culture studies into mouse models, building 3D tissues in the lab to look at neuron and glia interactions, and developing a 3D human cell model derived from iPS cells. He hopes that these models will help uncover key cell-to-cell interactions, and that when paired with cell-based screening, will help to elucidate the mechanisms of disease. What's really important is that we always connect back to the actual disease model. And I think of single cell readouts that uh, such as single cell RNA sequencing as a Rosetta Stone, that we can have the same readout in our cell-based systems as we can have in patient brains to really directly cross-compare what's happening. That's one of the reasons why I think these are extremely powerful. So for us, what's going to be really exciting is to really be systematic about uh, understanding what's cell type specific about a gene's function. And um, I think with our CRISPR brain database and our toolkit, um, we we are well positioned to do this. And uh, however, it's obviously a huge undertaking. And I think something that we're very excited about that the whole scientific community will, will contribute to. Thank you for listening to The Scientist's Lab Talk. This episode was produced by the Creative Services team for The Scientist and narrated by Tiffany Garbutt. Thank you again to 10X Genomics for sponsoring this episode.